That's the sound of a ventilator. Dr. Chirag Shah has heard that sound a lot this spring. As director of the intensive care unit at Morristown Medical Center, he has spent weeks battling the coronavirus, a pandemic that's killed nearly 600 Morris County residents. Today, we'll get the view from the ICU. Hi, I'm Kevin Coughlin of MorristownGreen.com. Thanks for joining us. Our guest has degrees in medicine, biology, and clinical epidemiology. His specialty is pulmonology, diseases of the lungs. Dr. Shah's medical training includes stints at Washington University and the University of Pennsylvania. How did that prepare him for COVID-19? How do you treat a disease that nobody's ever seen? A virus so new, it's called novel. And what kind of a toll has it taken on the people trying to treat it? For the next few minutes, we'll try to get inside Dr. Shah's lockdown world. Thank you very much for joining us today. You bet. Happy to be here. Just about one month ago, the CEO for Atlantic Health, the parent organization of the hospital, said that we are in a forest fire. Tell me what that forest fire was like. It, it's, it's been very challenging. I think it's been a successful process for us here at Morristown Medical Center. When you look back at things uh, in the midst of it, uh, there were a lot of challenges, but we found opportunities to make improvements. And um, I'm very proud of the way we were able to successfully care for patients here, uh, the way we were able to repurpose physicians, nurses, other staff members to do things that they've always been trained to do, but perhaps they didn't do every day on a day-to-day basis. And that allowed us to really extend ourselves and take care of patients in in ways we had never done before. Uh, And will simply prepare us for Uh, any other challenges we have, whether it be another wave of coronavirus or um, another epidemic or pandemic that we may meet over the next few years or decades. Hopefully not at all. That sounds sort of like an all-hands-on-deck kind of a situation. Tell me how busy it was, how full it was, how many COVID patients did you have at the height of this, and what kinds of things were you asking people to do that they wouldn't normally do? In terms of the height of it, we... uh, we had an ICU population that was uh, five times more than we typically cared for. We were very fortunate because our, our system had the foresight to purchase ventilators or procure other equipment so that we were able to do this. Honestly, the, the rate limiting step here was not equipment, um, but really getting personnel to realize they could do this. And we never put nurses or physicians or anybody in positions to fail. We put them in positions where they were always buddied with somebody who did this every day. So it was almost like a big brother, little brother, or big sister, little sister approach to everything. So this allowed us to extend the number of patients we care for without really seeing an, uh, an increase in, I don't want to say errors, but increase in, in, in things where we would have done things differently. But here, we really were able to get people to do everything we needed to do and, and really translate it to excellent patient care. The ICU had five times the normal number of patients and were were all of them COVID patients or most of them COVID patients? In the end, almost all were COVID. There, there's always going to be a subset of patients we refer to as COVID at risk or patients or people under uh, investigation while we're waiting for their tests to come back. So those patients 
who we had a high suspicion they had COVID, we treated as such. So looking at those patients, typically after 48 hours or so, we know what their diagnosis was. But by and large, majority of them were confirmed cases. And so in terms of actual numbers, what are we talking about? I take care of largely the ICU patients, but looking at those, uh, we're talking over 100. Over 100 with COVID. Wow. In the intensive care unit, yes. At the height of everything. So, so how scary was that for you and your, your nurses and doctors every day to have to go in there with 100 people that are infected? You know, I, I never found it scary. So scary to me is when you go into a situation where you don't know what you're going to do. You don't know who's going to be there to help you. You don't know if you have the right resources to take care of patients. But when you know you have PPE, you know you have ventilators, you know you have equipment, and you know you have people who have the heart to want to take care of these patients with you, you you go in with a sense of ease that we're going to get this done. It, It was challenging to lead a lot of this, and I had a lot of help. And I don't even think that I led it. I think I was part of it. Uh, I think it's scary when you don't know how you're going to do it. Here I felt we had a, we had a well-oiled machine. We just had never driven the machine. And, and it worked out really good. I know that you take uh, you know, extreme precautions, but people get sick. How many of your staff did wind up getting sick from COVID? That's a tough question. Um, I can tell you, it wasn't zero, obviously. It was a handful. But could I give you an exact number? No. What I do know is talking to colleagues at other institutions, um, whether it be in New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, we had a very low number. And I, if you told me that that was going to be the number a month ago or two months ago, I would have been ecstatic. And I would have, I would have been like, we did really well. And I think that's part of the process here is that that's what made it not so scary coming into work. I can tell you there wasn't a single day that I worried about getting sick. Did, uh, did all your staff, did they did they all recover? Did any wind up on a, on a ventilator? I can't say everyone sailed through this, no, but uh, we're talking about uh, less than a handful that uh, were sick sick. Did they all pull through? Okay. Uh, we, had, uh, we had one that did not. Uh, within our uh, particular hospital, Morristown Medical Center. I can't speak for the other hospitals in our health system. So that must have been pretty tough. Tell, tell me how, how your staff dealt with that. Losing one of your own in this battle must have been, I imagine, very, very crushing. It, it hits home. Um, and I don't think we can say we, we dealt with it. Because when you say you dealt with it, uh, it means you're over. You're never over this, right? This is we're humans, and you, you don't ever deal with a death in a family. Uh, it's always in your in your head. I think uh, a better way of of addressing is that we used that experience and and, and all that to sort of repurpose our strengths and and, uh, and take care of other patients and sort of in memory. I did write about uh, about one person who worked there. Darrell Johnson, and he helped to move patients around in patient transport. That was a very, very sad story. He, he left behind four children. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This disease really is tough. The CEO, Brian uh, Granulati, had mentioned that uh, he began his career as an EMT and that after a very difficult run, they would have sort of a debriefing session where they could sort of talk about what they'd experienced, but 
in COVID, there really wasn't a lot of time for that. And I want to ask you, how, how do you and your fellow uh, doctors and nurses compartmentalize this when you're in the middle of it? It's, it's, it's challenging, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, being uh, an intensive care unit physician, working with patients who have critical illness and, and, and dying from their disease is not uncommon. So not that you ever think that you're used to anything in medicine. Um, you do come to the plate with a little bit of background in uh, self-defense sort of mechanisms on how to deal with this. But having said that, the way you deal with it is you make sure you give appropriate time off. Being a physician, you, you were humans. And sometimes that time off means an entire day or two off. And sometimes it means in the middle of the day to take 10, 15, 30 minutes to yourself or with a colleague and um, reflecting on what happened and leaning on one another and not being afraid to tell somebody that you had a bad day or that you, you want to talk about something. Uh, I made it a point that in everybody I work with uh, to ask the simple question, how are you doing? And not the customary, hey, how's it going? But, hey, how are you doing? How is things? At, how are things at home? Um, is there anything different we could be doing that you think would be better. Uh, sometimes if you don't ask, uh, people are scared to give opinions. And especially when you're in a, a role of leadership, people oftentimes don't want to tell you what they think. But right now we're, we're in a situation where nobody knows the right answer. And it's always important to get everyone's opinion from other physicians, nurses, therapists, transporters, um, people, anybody in the hospital. In the end, we're all human. We all have uh, experiences that can maybe make this experience easier for everybody. For those of us that are uh, lay people, we're used to seeing medical people wearing their game face, kind of like soldiers maybe. And is that kind of what's instilled in you in medical school or uh, are you encouraged to sort of, if you have to cry, to cry? You know, I, I went to medical school, medical school more than 20 years ago, so I'm not uh, proud to say, but I think back then uh, being uh, emotional about things probably wasn't I'm not saying it was frowned upon, but it wasn't as sort of seen. And I think as you go through the years of training, residency, fellowship, you become an attending, you slowly realize that it is very important to show those emotions, uh, that there are times where it's appropriate. You, you have to have a game face on for the well-being of the others that are working with you to show confidence. But uh, at, all, at other times, it's also important to show that uh, you're human because if you show those attributes, it allows other people to be humans. And, and, and that's what makes us stronger as a group. When we come back, Dr. Shah talks about PPE. And that's the type of experiences that can really scar physicians and nurses. You're listening to MorristownGreen.com. We're doing our best to help Greater Morristown stay informed during this challenging time. And we need your help. If you can, please make a contribution at morristowngreen.com donate. And if you'd like to become a sponsor of the Morristown Green podcast and reach a large audience that lives within earshot of your business or organization, please drop me a line at morristowngreen at gmail.com or give a call at 973-944-944. 0530. We're speaking with Dr. Chirag Shah, 
director of the ICU at Morristown Medical Center. What was the, the single toughest moment for you during this, the, the moment that, you know, try though you may, you will never forget? For me personally, it was actually not so much sort of the onslaught of things we dealt with in the hospital, but when your children or, or your wife or your you know people you love ask you, when is this going to end? How much longer can you do this? And you see the fear in their eyes and the concern they have for you. And I think that's the hardest part is I don't really concern or get concerned too much about my own individual well-being. I, I, I think we're going to be okay. You know, uh, we, we have the right tools to succeed. But people who aren't here, like my wife or my kids, they don't see that. Right. They just see daddy or, or, or their loved one go off to work, but they may not realize how ready we are for all of this. Uh, it's sort of, you know, not to um, trivialize it to uh, and nor should anybody ever trivialize it to a, a sporting event. But if you watch sports, it's one thing to see your kid go play. But when you get to see him playing, you get to see him succeed. You feel good about how the game's going to end. But if you don't get to see any of it, all you know is he went to the game and then he came home. You have no idea what happened. So I think that was the part that was hardest for me is trying to get my family to understand that we're going to be okay. What was the most heroic thing that you've seen so far in the hospital? Oh, there's so many. But if I had to choose one, I'll, wow. Um, I, the one that, uh, I'll choose the one that came, comes first to my mind. And, and I think it's the way I saw nurses and physicians work together as a team, uh, where people who were used to giving direction took direction. That's the hardest thing, right? When you're used to leading a small group, but now you're being asked to do things. It's, it's taking people who are in roles of leadership and having them sort of follow uh, certain uh, protocols or the ways to do things or having to modify the way they're used to doing things because uh, you're trying to make things standardized so that people get similar care. Uh, I think that's the most horrible thing. Where we, t- we ask individuals who day-to-day are used to doing A, and now they're asked to do B, and wow, they can do B as good as they used to do A. So tell me about uh, some of the more unusual pairings. You talked about the buddy system, uh, having an experienced ICU person with someone that's not from that part of the hospital. What were some of the pairings that were kind of out of the ordinary? So the pairings that we use here at the hospital at Morristown included using an intensive care unit nurse. So somebody who's not only a nurse, but has special certification in critical care, working with uh, uh, a nurse that perhaps has, doesn't have that certification that typically is taking care of patients not in the intensive care unit and then using the two together to take care of a group of patients. Uh, and then that's how that second nurse learns. And um, from a physician level, it's no different than where you have physicians who are not uh, people who typically take care of patients in the intensive care unit. So that's a special type of training you do in fellowship. And then they work with intensive care unit physicians in order to get the job done. And, but in the end, every patient still gets touched by an intensivist or somebody boarded in critical care. But when you allow that intensivist to work with people who aren't necessarily 
trained specifically in critical care, but still trained in taking care of sick patients, you extend their ability to take care of patients. So instead of taking care of five or 10 patients, we have the ability to take care of 20 or 25 patients, still with uh, a lot of success because we focus on exclusively the problems that can't be handled by others. Did you have to make uh, any of the hard decisions that we heard about in New York and in Italy about who gets a ventilator and who doesn't? No, we were very fortunate. We did not need to cross that uh, that line. Uh, did it come close at some point? No, no. We always had enough ventilators. Uh, we were fortunate that we were able to procure enough uh, in our health system uh, to do that. How'd you do that? <laughs> well, yeah, um, you know, a lot of it goes to the credit of our, our chief medical officer, uh, uh, Louis Rubinson, and uh, Trish O'Keefe, our president, and, and having the foresight to know that these things were a possibility. And what you don't ever want to feel is that you couldn't provide care for somebody, not because you didn't have the equipment or you didn't have the personnel. That that leaves you really empty as a, as a person. And that's the type of experiences that can really scar physicians and nurses and so forth. And, and it was paramount not to have to do that. And I not once worried about when are we going to get that next ventilator? And we, and we also were fortunate that we had a lot of success in taking care of these patients and getting patients on off the respirator. So freeing up that uh, piece of equipment for the next patient. So uh, it's sort of staying ahead of the wave. What was a typical uh, stay on a ventilator? Oh, it, it varies. I mean, averages are, are just are a little misleading here, but we had some people who were on it for just a couple days and, and some people that required a ventilator for over four weeks. And what would you say is the percentage of people that were able to come off a ventilator? Uh, we, we still have a fair number of on the ventilator right now, but I think our success rate has been, uh, at least looking at the figures from other locations in, in the East Coast or even uh, internationally, our numbers are, are fortunately a lot better than uh, the numbers that we've seen out there. Uh, our success is, uh, I would say, two-thirds uh, two thirds to half easily are, are uh, able to come off the respirator and so forth. And then that's, though, though those are numbers that we are very, you know, happy about. And we can, there's always room to improve. But when you look at some of the numbers we had seen in New York City and so forth, we're, we're ecstatic at those numbers. Why do you suppose that is? Why the success here? It's it's very difficult because the patients can be different, right? You know, the patients we see are different than the patients there. Clearly, some of it could be treatment, but we don't know. And we won't know until this is all done and we were able to look back at this uh, um, this information and try to analyze it uh, you know, and look at the granular elements of it and decide what made a difference and what didn't. Uh, but right now, too, too premature to really know. After the break, Dr. Shah critiques the response to COVID-19. At a national level, we, we chased some of these therapies. That's the part that, that's been sort of surprising to me, that we were so quick to chase them when we had very little signs to suggest they would be helpful. You're listening to MorristownGreen.com. We've been working nonstop to bring you the stories of how this once-in-a-century pandemic is challenging our community. We need your help to keep going. If you can, please contribute to morristowngreen.com slash donate. 
And if you'd like your business or organization to be featured right here, become a sponsor of the Morristown Green podcast. Drop me a line at morristowngreen at gmail.com or give a call at 973-944-0530. So you're an epidemiologist and a pulmonologist, and your specialty is um, the intensive care unit. What, What so far have been the biggest surprises that you've seen with COVID-19 compared to other things that you've treated? I think the biggest surprise is uh, early on the, the amount of uh, attention given to experimental treatments that for whatever reason, people thought based on very little biologic plausibility that they'd be helpful and jumped onto them as if they were going to be miracle saving drugs. When we look at other diseases that Sure, they're not COVID, but when we look at H1N1 influenza, when we look at some of the other pandemics we've seen, very few novel therapies ever go into fruition. And and I think early on at an international level and definitely at at a national level, we we chased some of these therapies. That's the part that's, that's been sort of surprising to me that we were so quick to chase them when we had very little science to suggest they would be helpful. And I think... The lesson I, I, I tried to not necessarily teach, but want others to learn is that you have to have a lot of science before you back a therapy because all therapies uh, have side effects. Where does that leave you then? So your team has to treat this thing that nobody knows how to treat, basically. Uh, what do you give them? What do you prescribe? Well, so, you know, we talk about this as a disease we've never seen, but remember, coronavirus causes a certain type of disease in the body. Now, this disease, you know, not to get too medical with things, is something called sepsis or uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS or ARDS, as some people say. Now, those are not uncommon diseases. We see those in the intensive care unit all the time. We just see the insult from a different cause, whether it be bacterial pneumonia, whether it be influenza and so forth. So if you can manage the syndromes, uh, and basically, the cornerstone of therapy is to support the body's organs and allow the body to naturally heal from these things using its own uh, immune system. And if you can support the organs and prevent new problems, um, majority of these patients will do well. Now, you don't have to identify uh, a miracle or uh, a miracle drug or a silver bullet necessarily for people to survive. In fact, uh, we haven't identified anything that we know kills coronavirus yet. So, yet we have. Many people recover from this. So I think the, the cornerstone of therapy is understanding good, solid, intensive care unit treatment, meaning knowing how to use respirators, use, knowing how to manage people's blood pressure, how to make sure they get adequate nutrition, how to prevent new complications. Um, you're going to, the majority of people are going to do better with that. And that's what the focus should be on, not necessarily chasing drugs that that aren't backed by science. And it's important for us as scientists to figure that out. But uh, in the midst of all of this, uh, practice the things you know are going to work and uh, the other things will come. So I can get you on the record saying that uh, you're not treating patients with Clorox or malaria pills? 
<laughs> Clorox definitely not. We use Clorox to clean the ICUs and so forth. But uh, uh, you know, up front we did, we did use a lot of hydroxychloroquine. That's one of the drugs that has been used for malaria prophylaxis after a lot of media attention and, and so forth, and after some uh, preliminary uh, studies that suggested their benefit. But now that we look back on it, you know, six eight weeks later, uh, these drugs. Um, uh, haven't shown a, a substantial benefit whatsoever. So the good thing about that, those drugs is um, the hydroxychloroquine had a very low side effect profile. So you balance novel therapies with what their side effect profile is. I interviewed a, uh, a pastor who survived COVID. She was pretty sick for a while and they gave her Kalitra. Did you try that one? So Kalitra is a drug that has um, uh, activity against uh, uh, HIV. And HIV obviously is a very different virus than coronavirus. Having said that, uh, we did not use it. The, the preliminary studies on that have shown that there's not reason to think that it it helps. And until we get what's called a randomized controlled trial, I don't see a role for that right now. When, uh, when we started, uh, you mentioned that there was some comfort level knowing that you're going into uh, the ICU with the proper equipment. But I, I remember at the onset of this, uh, you know, you worked for the top-ranked hospital in New Jersey and one of the top-ranked hospitals in the country. And yet, you know, online, you guys were giving instructions, do-it-yourself instructions, how to make masks. And there was a huge outpouring of donations of masks from the community to the hospital. And this was going on all across the country. What was the PPE situation like in the very beginning? From the very beginning, we did not have any shortage. I, I, we would not allow healthcare professionals to go into rooms without appropriate uh, PPE, you know, mask, you know, N95 mask, not just simply a surgical mask, but a, an N95 mask, uh, gloves, gowns, uh, that just wasn't something we felt the risk was appropriate to expose healthcare. Did, um, did you have to reuse them, though, in ways perhaps that you would not have liked to have done? No. Uh, we, we, so did we sterilize them, reuse them? Yes, but in a way that makes them just as effective as the first time you use them in with um, uh, mechanisms to retest the mask to see if it still works. And if it doesn't, it gets discarded. So did we reuse them? Yes. Uh, and I think that's... Uh, it's like recycling things. You absolutely should do that, uh, but never recycle something and use it if you didn't think it worked at the same level as what it was intended to work at. So never felt that I was using compromised PPE. How were you able to get hold of it when so many other hospitals were in such tough shape? Uh, I give a lot of accolades to the people in, in the health system that uh, were able to procure these things. Uh, they were able to get everything we needed. I mentioned there were donations the the public outpouring. I mean, every street in Morristown, you see a sign thanking the healthcare heroes. And it seems like almost nightly, there's a there's a caravan, a parade, a pizza delivery, and the Easter bunny was driven by the hospital. Yes. All those kinds of things. How much do they resonate inside the hospital with the staff? Oh, I think the staff are so appreciative of this. Not that we feel like people should do this, but when you, when you have people do this in your community, just out of their own volition. It, it means a lot. And you know, when you, you said earlier, you know, when you're having a tough day and you're having a time where you need to take a moment for yourself, and you see something like that. Um, it, it's wonderful. It makes you want to do this. And not that I wouldn't want to do it anyway, but 
it's so thoughtful. It's so important. And for the community to give back to the, uh, for us, uh, it's, it's, it will forever remember this. How has uh, COVID-19 changed you as a doctor? I don't think it necessarily has changed me in the way, in sort of a bad way in any way. I think the only way it's sort of perhaps made me a better physician is the ability to realize that we can overcome anything. Had you asked me a year ago, what would you think would happen in a situation like this? I don't know if I would be on the other end like I am today. So I think where it's changed me is I think it's made me more confident in our health system. In, and, but more importantly, it's really made me confident in the people here at Morristown, that we uh, can come together as a team. We can do things we didn't expect we can do. It's like being an underdog and then winning it all, you know? Every day now, the governor is issuing um, executive orders to slowly reopen things here in New Jersey, to open the, reopen the economy. As we begin to reopen New Jersey and the country, what scares you? I don't think anything scares me. I think there are things that concern me. And, and I think a lot of that is going to be on if we can get widespread, widespread testing and testing where we get results fast enough to sort of help deal or assess patients with symptoms and so forth. Because through all of this, people are still getting sick from everything else they're getting sick from. And Morristown has done a great job at compartmentalizing the two groups. So if you come in with symptoms of a heart attack, symptoms of a stroke, but you don't have any COVID symptoms, these people are sort of sheltered away from exposure. And when we look at that, you know, we have to realize that through all of this, that there, there are people who are unfortunately staying at home, and, and that's the part that, that, that concerns me the most. It doesn't scare me, but concerns me because we want to help those people too, and we've set up a system here that we can help those people and not have them exposed uh, to COVID. That coming to the hospital doesn't mean you're going to get sick. Coming to the hospital is where you come to get better, and, uh, and I think that's the part that concerns me as, as we start to uh, reopen. I want people to still come to the hospital with COVID symptoms, or even if they don't have COVID symptoms, but they have other symptoms they need, they need health care for, those are the people that I want still to come. Because now that we've gone through this once, we're going to be even better the next time through. Dr. Chirag Shah, thank you so much for being our guest. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Our thanks to Dr. Chirag Shah of Morristown Medical Center and to Karen Zatorsky of Atlantic Health. Also, thanks to Domenico Randazzo for our background music. Check out his work at domenicosounds.com. Thank you to the Center for Cooperative Media at Montclair State University for its support in getting this podcast up and running. And thank you for listening. For morristowngreen.com, this is Kevin Coughlin. Until next time, stay safe.